Hello, Ash here. Just a quick interruption to say that you can now buy catch-up passes to watch recordings from the first Digital Works conference. The recordings are available to watch back in full until August the 9th, 2024, and they cost just £75. You can buy passes on the Digital Works website at thedigital.works. Okay, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Hello and welcome to the Digital Works podcast, the podcast about digital stuff in the cultural sector. Today's episode, episode 17, the penultimate episode of 2020, is a conversation with Robin Cantrell-Fennick. Robin is the CEO of Baker Richards. Baker Richards are an international provider of consulting services and software for the cultural sector. Baker Richards is one third of the Insights Alliance alongside Indigo and one further. The Insights Alliance have been running a monthly audience insights tracker that they call the Culture Restart Tracker. And it's that research that Robin and I discuss in our conversation, along with recommendations on books to read about consumer psychology, whether pre-2020 segmentation models are still as applicable in the new, more digital world we're currently grappling with, and much more. Enjoy. Hi, Robin. Thanks for joining me today. Hello, Ash. What a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to talking about some of the work that you've been doing um, at Baker Richards as part of the Insights Alliance with colleagues at One Further and Indigo. Because I think that research that you've been doing, you know, this year has proven invaluable for for organisations as they start thinking about how they might reopen, but equally how they react to the all the the changes that we've experienced over over 2020 um so today we're going to talk specifically about some of that research which is all available um for people to look at on the baker richards website uh we are going to talk yes about digital stuff and pricing digital activity and people's willingness to pay for that sort of thing but also i think you know people listening to this, uh, many of them work in cultural organisations. Um, obviously, we are still very much in the midst of the pandemic and the question about how we reopen, when we, we reopen, what people's uh, motivations and, and worries are around that, I think are, are salient to so many of the people tuning in. So maybe that's where we'll start. Um and and this culture restart audience tracker is a, a monthly piece of work that you're doing. Um, I believe you've got full data up to the end of November and you've already got data coming in for December. So it's extremely timely. And I wonder maybe a starting point is, you know, what is the general sentiment that's coming back from audiences? How are they feeling about engagement with culture, cultural attendance? Yeah, so we launched the Culture Restart Audience Sentiment uh, Tracker back in uh, October. Um, We felt that was the right time to launch it because looking ahead, it seemed like a time was coming um, where 
events were going to move in a way that would make it really interesting to track audience sentiment. Um, it's sort of inherent in uh, a tracking survey like uh, Culture Restart that the responses that you get change over time as the facts change. And one of the things that we really wanted to ensure that we achieved with Culture Restart was to just uh, get out there what audiences are thinking at any given moment, not just for um, uh, the venues and the producers, many of whom have done their own uh, research and their own surveying, but actually just recognising that there is a whole world of uh, freelancers, there's a whole industry of agencies like yours and mine and other uh, down-the-line businesses who have a vested interest in knowing what audiences are really thinking about returning to, to culture. So um, you're absolutely right, as we record this in mid-December, um, I am looking at the full results for uh, October and November. And, this, the, and I should say that um, that covers around 7,500 responses um, from the UK, and with a bias towards more frequent attenders. And one of the things that we're really working on over the next few months is trying to get under the skin of those infrequent attenders who are who are so important to the sector. But right now it's focused on the kind of loyalists. Um, and what we're seeing is an increase in confidence. So um, we have uh, uh, an overall uh, net confidence score that we measure, which goes from minus 100% to plus 100%. And from October to November, that's risen from plus 47 to plus 54. So there's an overall confidence um, that is clearly born out of people who have had an opportunity to attend culture, have had a good and safe time, and are feeling more confident about returning in the future. Um, we are seeing that... Uh, there's a real knock-on effect of the announcements around um, a vaccination. So although overall confidence of returning has gone up, so too has the proportion of people saying that they won't actually come back uh, to a physical performance until uh, they have been vaccinated. So that's risen to now a quarter of respondents who are not planning to return to culture until they've had a vaccination, which potentially means that the, the, reco that the recovery of live in-person shared performance is linked quite closely to uh, the rollout of vaccination in the UK. And, and interestingly, even with all the talk of vaccination that we've had over the last six weeks, so um, Pfizer's announcement about their vaccination came out very early in November, um, even knowing all that, we're still in a situation actually where 72% of audiences say they would be uncomfortable returning to a venue with no face covering and no social distancing. Um, so there's still some way to go in terms of audience recovery, but confidence is up. And I think actually we can take the sign, uh, the signal on vaccines to be a real positive that people are seeing that as a major contributor to returning to live in-person culture. Yeah, and obviously that's that's encouraging to hear that things are trending in the direction that we would all hope. Um, and I think it's, you know, understandably... Uh, been a, a hugely difficult year for people. We've very much all been at the mercy of events outside our control. However, I think it's really interesting in your research to see that um, people who have already attended a, uh, a cultural experience where there were sort of COVID safe um, things in place, social distancing, you know, uh, clear signage, mask wearing, hand sanitizing, 
timed entry, contactless payments, all those sorts of things. It, it seems that those people are then, once they've had that experience, they feel much safer and more comfortable and more confident about having another experience. Absolutely. What does this tell us? That, that venues who have been able to open in a COVID-secure way are getting an awful lot right. They're doing things well. This, of course, is what's underpinning the enormous frustration that we all feel around the way that cultural venues are among the first to shut when um, areas go into higher tiers and so on, because actually what we are seeing is that audience confidence in having a, a safe and pleasant experience is really high. You know, Bernard Donoghue, who uh, is the chief executive of the Association of Leading Visitor Attractions, has for a very long time now been saying that when it comes to the world of uh, visitor attractions the response is about sanitizing the venue and not the experience and I think that cultural organizations have been doing that tremendously well Um, you know and that is reflected in some of the numbers that we see so um, when we surveyed audiences in October 13% of people anticipated that once uh, they felt comfortable returning to culture they would attend less often than they than they had previously that's dropped now by five points to eight percent of people who think they will attend less often so venues are 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 getting an awful lot right Um, we've seen some really excellent practices around communication um, as well as around safety which is so important Um, the survey does point to Things like booking flexibility, um, accessibility of a refund, confidence around that being uh, a really important factor to get people back into venues. And we've seen all sorts of practices around that, you know, everything from um, uh, people like, you know, the Exeter Northcott Theatre who have a policy where if anybody in the party has been affected by COVID, um, then you can contact them and get a refund, which is a really, really broad policy. And they say, you know, contact us when you can. So it's not intensely rules-based. It's human language. If you've been affected by it, let us know um, uh, and we'll see you right, which I think is just a, a great approach for those venues that can do that. Through to an increase in interest uh, and uptake of booking protection products, Um, which, of course, from a venue's perspective, can be really fantastic in that they uh, increase people's confidence in attending and and are also often a a revenue stream. Um, So, yeah, the the message is coming through loudly and clear that people are willing to come back, but they do want that safety net of what happens if they themselves are directly affected by COVID. Yeah, and I think, you know, as this whole thing stretches on longer than... I think most of us thought it might do. I wonder if you have any sense of, you know, just how important that sort of not just being flexible, but communicating overtly and clearly that flexibility and, as you said, that sort of human voice, human tone to communications come through loud and clear. I mean, if you look at other industries, you look at the airline industry, for example, um, lots and lots of people who had suddenly had holidays they couldn't go on quite happily took vouchers um or rebooked flights for 12 months hence because you know there was all the press coming out that the airline industry was on the verge of collapse and what those people are now finding is that you know that initial goodwill shown by customers towards corporations is not being reciprocated back the other way and i wonder if you have any i, I don't know if you have any data but a sense you know looking at this at this situation actually it feels that the cultural sector has responded in a far more 
nuanced and sort of emotionally intelligent way but i wonder if you have a sense of the importance of continuing that that way of operating I think that's absolutely um, right. I think you've hit the nail on the head that the, the cultural sector actually in its response has been very good at this. Um, uh, audiences are uh, very, very clear that they are willing to, uh, I should say loyal audiences from the Culture Restart Tracker, are willing to hand over their money um, to a cultural provider if they're confident that if you like that money will be treated with respect that if the performance is cancelled or that if they themselves are uh, uh, unable to attend that they will get that money back I think that cultural organisations have been very respectful of that and are being rewarded what we are of course also seeing which is I think unavoidable for the moment is uh, a marked tendency towards last minute booking so um, where we don't have uh, incentives in place to encourage early booking, um, where we don't have that kind of absolute confidence in place that, that you have that rock-solid guarantee of being able to get your money back if your circumstances change, then, of course, we're seeing audiences um, tend to book um, uh, at the last minute. That's not, interest, not in the interest of the venue. Um, uh, it's not in the interest of the producers. Uh, it's not in the interests of the audiences often because the longer they wait to book, the, the, the less attractive inventory, the less attractive seating they'll have uh, available to them, the less attractive time slots. But you can absolutely understand that there is a, a really substantial amount of caution around handing over money, which is not just about what does the cultural organisation do and what it behaves like, but you're absolutely right. It comes from the analogues, from, from, from uh, other industries, other experiences that we have. And if the general sense that we have is organisations are very keen to give our, get our money out of us but not give it back, um, then that will affect uh, booking confidence. And, uh, you know, you, you touched on um, sort of how this year has impacted expected patterns of behavior you know around how far in advance people book um but i also wonder you know you indicated that many of the respondents um for the work that you're doing are more regular attenders to cultural um experiences and certainly speaking to to people that run cultural organizations um who have attempted to reopen in the little pockets of time they've been given you know no one's making money during the, that time but i know a lot of people were keen to reopen so that they could try and get ensure that people were staying in the habit of attending cultural um, experiences and there's this phenomenon that, that you mention in in your report you, you term the six month phenomenon um, that for some people who have said you know we'll come back in six months actually that six months seems to be a a bit of a, a moving a moving feast that it's, is it's entirely a rolling six months definitely yeah, yeah. Um and, um and this is a sorry go on ask 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 a question no no I, I was just going to say do you think that there is i don't know if danger is over over egging it but you know 2020 has shattered so many norms and for people who perhaps went to the theater once a month or once every few months actually now having not been for you know it's probably going to be a year or more is there a danger that they may not resume that habit or they may not resume that habit quite as as regularly yeah, that absolutely is. Um, uh, what we have seen for these loyal attenders is a shift towards attending the culture which is available. So people who 
historically would have uh, attended drama or live music and so on have moved to cinema for the brief period that cinemas are open uh, or moved to outdoor heritage because they want to stay culturally engaged. There is a whole world of audience beyond that who are what we would call infrequent loyalists. So these are your people who are in the habit of coming once or twice a year as a special night out. Um, and those are the people who the industry is really going to be fighting to get back, along with, of course, your sort of inbound international tourists who we have very little control over when, when those audiences return. Getting people into the habit of uh, theatre attending uh, and, and more broadly arts and cultural attendance is one of the most useful things that organisations can do. It's why so many organisations focus on a frequency strategy or loyalty programmes, because the more uh, it's self-fulfilling, the more you get people come back, the more that they will come back in the future. Um, so when you look at um, some of the work that, uh, you know, I think of a client of ours, the Royal Danish Theatre over in Copenhagen, um, uh, really kind of thought about how they link up their digital and their real-world uh, offer. And so they created a, a programme called Scene Change, which is priced on a par with uh, Netflix. So for around about £10 a month, if you're under 25, you can attend an unlimited amount of in-house production at the Royal Danish Theatre. So if you want to uh, explore opera and drama and other different types of performance um, then you have uh, so you subscribe through an app um, and uh, you can book from 14 days in advance so it recognizes that last minute booking behavior um, you don't see exactly which seat you'll be sitting in until six hours before the performance um, but for 10 pounds a month cancelable at any time um, you can uh, experiment and experience as much live culture as you like it's one of the ways that uh, one theatre has adapted to uh, you know, a, a very um, uh, rapidly changing world. Um, but of course, the, the more uh, reluctant that audiences are to reattend in person, actually, of course, the greater the opportunity for digital. And we have seen a, a huge amount of uh, innovation in that space over the last few months, as you well know. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a nice segue maybe into the specifics of of the, the explosion in, in digital activity we've seen this year. And, you know, it's it's been an area that the cultural sector on the whole has not, you know, hugely engaged with delivering, you know, I'm going to use a horrible term, but cultural product through digital channels um, to the same degree as they would through their in-person um, programmes. And I think, you know, for someone like me, that's really exciting to see the, the cultural sector really grappling with that question. Um, I think what the cultural sector seemed to quite quickly realise that it took news media a decade or more to notice that giving everything away for free is probably not a sustainable model. And that was a bit of a relief to see that that shift away from just putting everything on YouTube Um and not asking really for any money for it. Um, and I know you've looked at this, this question, you know, around our, whether, you know, what is people's willingness to pay for access to content and experiences? Um, so maybe that's a starting point, you know, what, what is the appetite from audiences who perhaps got used to being able to watch, you know, multi-camera capture of, 
you know, high quality plays on YouTube and not having to part with any money to now being asked for, you know, 10, 15, 20 pounds. Yeah, so I think we we should start by saying there's a, um, a component of behavioral economics called the price quality effect, um, which has absolutely come into to play here. Um, so the price quality effect kicks in when there are few other cues as to the relative quality of uh, of a product and it, and it and its value. So you know, if you're an expert in gin, for example, you absolutely will know which are the better quality distilleries or the better blends or whatever. If you're me, who likes a, a gin and tonic every now and then, um, then all you really know is that a more expensive bottle of gin is probably better than a cheaper bottle of gin. Uh, and at that, the moment that the kind of mass participation in digital culture came into existence, you know, a, a lot of organisations went out there and said, this is free. Um, we reinforced all of those perceptions that now exist around second best, stopgap, uh, a diversion. And to be honest, let, let's be absolutely clear about this. I cannot criticise that at all because it was an enormous expression of the, the latent value of the cultural sector that was just unleashed in a kind of moment of crisis for the world. You know, as a sector, we said, we, we can't cure this, uh, but we can make our time spent in this situation better um, and we can create moments of connection. So I don't actually criticise that unleashing of, of free content at all. Um, where we are now, though, is um, that when we look at the um, uh, responses that we're seeing for Culture Restart, so 78% of those who are who are interested in digital um, would be willing to pay um, the the vast majority of those so fifty nine percent in November um, would expect to pay less than live so there is a signal out there that that you know the digital experience is worth less than live um, around about twenty three percent would be willing to donate um, and just six percent would be willing to pay the same as live for a digital experience. Uh, but not all digital experiences are equal. So willingness to pay is much greater for things like creative workshops, interactive events, uh, experiences which were created specifically for online. Um, and the uh, the willingness to pay anything close to full price then starts to decline as you get into things like live stream recordings, uh, online talks, uh, view on demand archive, uh, and starts to pick up again interestingly around things like virtual guided tours, um, which we've seen people like you know the uh, the National Gallery um, uh, really innovate on. So there's a signal coming through that where where the experience is live, where it's potentially interactive active um, uh, and or when it's been specifically created for online so people can have a high level of confidence that they're going to have a high quality digital experience then willingness to pay um, is is higher for for those sorts of services so actually when you look at something like a creative workshop 27 percent of people are willing to pay the same as live um, to attend a a digital workshop yeah and i think for me that's been one of the most pleasantly surprising insights that we've gained this year you know certainly our experience working with cultural organizations absolutely backs up that finding um you know 
Opera North, an organization um, we, we work with based in, in the north of England, had huge success with uh, singing workshops that they did earlier in the year. Um, I know English National Ballet have launched a whole subscription scheme around uh, sort of ballet fitness classes. I know Sadler's Wells have seen huge engagement with dance workshops around different styles of dance. Um, and, and actually, not to be sort of... Uh, nakedly commercial about all of this but but perhaps our activity that has hitherto been seen as not revenue generating in a digital context suddenly becomes a, a, a different proposition i think hugely and and you know there, there are all sorts of implications actually for for this potential market so um when we dig dig deeper into the the data we see um a really clear dislike for um subscriptions actually um which is interesting because we know there are specific subsectors where actually subscriptions have been working quite nicely and um those tend to be those subsectors where um subscriptions were a big part of the traditional model beforehand so um thinking particularly of orchestral music people like the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra um our clients the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra um uh, Royal Scottish National Orchestra have all had really successful subscription digital schemes um uh, since lockdown so um people are expressing that they don't necessarily have a desire to be tied in but again i think this is about flexibility you know i often point people to um uh, friday at five which is a online membership that was created specifically as a response to covid by sf jazz san francisco jazz and it's a five dollar a month membership which is all around creating a shared live but virtual experience so i think the experience is live so this is effectively a watch party at 5 p.m on a friday you gather together to watch a recording of a performance um and that membership is a five dollar a month membership that you can cancel at any time you've got that flexibility built in um uh but it's all about of course building up a pool of people who one can continue into perpetual digital membership, that new audience who may be nowhere near San Francisco, may never attend SF Jazz, but also about creating a pipeline back into real world membership, real world attendance um, at SF Jazz itself. And that idea of subscription, I think, is interesting. You know, I've had a number of conversations with people who are trying to work out how they could deliver that idea for their organization you know you get lots of comparisons being made with netflix which i think is possibly unhelpful because no cultural organization is ever going to be able to produce the breadth and depth of content that netflix does at the price point that netflix delivers it um, that being said what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is the national theater in the uk launching um, a subscription model digital platform um, that they're going to be putting uh, archive recordings of, of plays onto. And I can see that that totally makes sense for them to be sort of able to add a, a long tail to their NT Live program, um, broadcasting into cinemas. So I can so totally see for them it makes sense. But more broadly, I wonder how realistic it is for many organizations to consider that because if you think about your average cultural attendee they will at attend cultural experiences at many different organizations 
And I mean, we're starting to get into this situation in the real world where you've got a Netflix subscription, an Amazon Prime subscription, an Apple TV Plus subscription, a Disney subscription. You know, I, I don't, I don't know. Do you? I don't know if you have a sense of what the tolerance is for even highly engaged cultural attendees. You know, if someone attends ten different theaters a year, are they realistically going to want to hold ten different digital subscriptions, each costing them? Seven ninety nine a month. Oh well, that's an interesting uh, question. We we did a bit of work a number of years ago, actually on donations rather than subscriptions. But it it did demonstrate that um, uh, frequent cultural attenders were willing to donate to um, uh, multiple cultural organisations, and that some of your most loyal cultural attenders, uh, in terms of recency, frequency, and and monetary value. Uh, would also be donating to organisations that they never attended, simply on the on the basis that they felt a, a connection to those organisations. So, um, uh, however, I would say this that that I think there are a few implications from from what we're seeing at at, at the moment, um, uh, and some opportunities as well. So, um, inevitably, in the conversation that we've had, we have thought about um, what does a subscription model look like between. Uh, a subscriber and one organization um and i think there is uh, a real opportunity here around um uh, federation um so there's uh, a, a number of producers have been able to adapt very quickly to uh, a digital form of touring so they have um uh, taken their shows, taken their digital products, and sold them through theater uh, CRMs, through CRM uh, theater databases, and you know with, within the limits of kind of competition law and what are, you know it's worth exploring what are the opportunities to federate, um, what are the what is the potential to do deals on on a show which is based on distribution to ten, twenty, or thirty venues databases um, as opposed to just one, and of course the flip side of that is what is then the potential for uh, a subscription model that covers um, all of those areas and also I think it's it's worth just noting that there's a there's a coming out of the culture restart there's a big group of people 62% of people who say that once they can return to live performance they would be less likely to engage with online culture but would still consider online events that I wouldn't otherwise have a chance to see live um, that is a a huge portion of people. You know, you uh, have had um, Anka Baal from uh, Sadler's Wells on on this podcast. Absolutely, uh, a fantastic episode of the podcast. I have to say, well well worth. If anyone's listening to this who has not listened to that episode, um, uh, hugely worth listening to. Um, and he said very clearly that uh, audiences saw live capture as second best, and and I would agree with that. But I'm not as sure that live capture is as dead as many people think because there is a willingness here for people to engage with live capture if they otherwise wouldn't have the chance to to see it live so i think particularly if the incremental cost of capture can be kept relatively low um, so that the digital capture can be operationalized in the same way that, say, a, a captioned performance or an audio described performance is, then actually, uh, you know, I think there is a market there because 
we all have these sort of internal scales in our uh, internal scales in our head the the price value scales so we are willing to pay something if the price value scales are in alignment if we think we're getting getting our money's worth and interestingly i think there may actually be a market for cheap to purchase live capture which is undeniably second best which people would purchase if it is all that is available uh, uh, for them, if it's the only option available to them, um, and that that could exist without cannibalizing uh, live performance. And and often with digital capture, organizations go to enormous lengths to make it the highest quality capture they possibly can. So they do the camera rehearsals, they get up close, it's shot without an audience or with a minimal audience and so on. Whereas I do actually think there are indications here that particularly for those with new and high barriers to attendance, that there would be a willingness to pay less than a full price ticket for a digital experience that is captured live um, in a uh, a, a, a accessible quality, but clearly not beautifully shot uh, way. Yeah, and I think on that, there's so many so many points you made there that I'm going to try and pick through. But on that last point. Um... And another study that I looked at focused on North America, Laplace Cohen's um, culture track uh, study uh, indicated exactly that, that people through digital activity, particularly this year, were um, engaging with institutions that they had never visited and engaging with art forms that they had never experienced before. Um, and I think that, as you say, what digital does is it reduces the risk of engaging with with those with those art forms whether that's um risk around cost around sort of uh, perceptions of, of of barriers uh, you know do i need to get dressed up to the opera sort of thing um or the more obvious barriers that digital is good at addressing around geography um, and I think that is a really interesting area for organisations to think about. I, I totally agree, although interestingly, when um, in the first round of Culture Restart, we asked audiences what had held them back from engaging with digital um, those that hadn't taken part, the single biggest concern was around quality because they simply didn't know what they were going to get. Um, and so I think there is still work to do to persuade audiences that um, the uh, uh, the small amount, pardon me, the small amount that they may be paying online um, is still going to deliver an experience which meets or exceeds their their expectations. And I think you know this this has all sorts of implications for um, cultural organisations as digital content production becomes a, a much more important part of the organisation. And it leads to all kinds of questions around uh, resourcing in the form of people, resourcing in the form of, of finance and space and time. Um, you know, who are your experts in uh, digital audience segmentation in your business? Who are your expert digital content producers? Um, who are your experts in analytics, in targeting, in, in remarketing? Who are your experts in user journeys? You know, um, uh, agencies bring UX experience, but but it's then in the hands of organizations to build journeys on uh, our websites. You know, to what extent do these digital skills, which are absolutely vital to whether people watch or don't watch, whether they convert or don't convert, engage or don't engage, to what extent do they exist within the organizations and what resources are going to be committed to that in the future? Because um, you're absolutely right, any organization which 
just puts up some digital capture and sends a few emails and posts a few tweets is is unlikely to see uh, success in a way that a sustained strategic uh, and very well designed digital product, very well distributed digital product, uh, has the potential um, uh, to to have. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that point around digital skills is is essential. You know, digital skills have typically been siloed or or they live within the marketing sales communication parts of organizations um and it's probably time for organizations to try and spread that knowledge a bit more broadly across everything that they do interesting article from your friend of mine and previous guest of the podcast chris unit in arts professional um this week talking about digital skills and the need for the sector to sort of understand what digital competency and digital confidence looks like and how you can recruit for and train that in in the workforce i think is is an essential question for people to engage with i think that's completely true and it also links back to you know thinking about these linkages between digital and the real world experience as well so where we are seeing um, people who have uh, hesitancy or reluctance to book, um, or they just have questions, actually, to what extent, you know, are your audience team, your front of house team, or your your um, uh, customer service team, however you're constructed, to what extent are they plugged into social media, to the you know the the online messaging uh, function on your website, if it even exists? Um, uh, who owns? those conversations because you know if it's just the marketing department then the likelihood is that uh, opportunities are, are being missed because we have a, a, a job of work to do um, to re-engage with uh, existing audiences but also to attract new audiences and that means being open to listening um, to the needs and concerns of audiences. It means being willing to be flexible. Uh, it means being adaptable. So, um, you know, a lot of organizations have got a track record of doing a, say, a pre-show email and a, and a post-show survey um, and may kind of look at the aggregate results once a month, something like that. Certainly when, uh, uh, when I ran a theater, that was exactly what I did. Um, but actually what we now are encouraging people to do is do the pre-show survey, what were your expectations, and do the post-show survey, how did we meet your expectations or where did we fall short or what reinforced um, uh, a, a positive experience, both online and in a in a physical experience as well and so it's tremendously important that organizations are listening very closely and that probably means having more people engaged in things like social media and customer service channels and before and responding quickly um, because we know uh, the extraordinary power of word of mouth um, both positive and negative um, and so it's going to be tremendously important for organizations to uh, be thinking about those those communications channels and how they disseminate what audiences are thinking and feeling internally yeah and i think that's something we've noticed with everyone that started um operating in this in this area is that you know, if you've got a live stream happening at six o'clock, you're suddenly going to be having to answer probably very different customer queries. How do I cast this from my iPad onto my TV? My Wi-Fi is not working. You know, it's giving me this error message. What do I do? Um, and I think digital experiences mean that people will reach for digital channels in which to ask for customer service more readily than they perhaps would with um, sort of in-person experiences. 
I, I think that's com- completely right. Um, and of course, inherent in digital communications channels, built in are all of the expectations that we all have around the digital experience and what comes with that is flexibility and rapidity you know the kind of the speed of response um, and how organizations deliver uh, customer service if you want to call it that patron service um, is hugely important uh, going 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 into 2021 um, when people are likely to have very very specific queries um which which will not be satisfied by uh, a, you know a page of faqs yeah and, and just returning to to one other point that you made um a little while ago the idea of uh federation the idea of sort of multiple organizations coming together to distribute what is essentially the same content but helping that content reach their audiences i think is a really interesting one you know a question that's been posed a few times in various events I've been in and roundtables is, you know, we are a receiving theatre or in, in North America, a venue for hire. You know, yes, we program what we do, but we don't really have control over those shows. Um, what's our role in all of this? We can't be commissioning, you know, a live stream or something because that's sort of out of our control. But I think... Actually, it feels like in the UK, certainly, I've seen a number of examples of this in the stand-up comedy world. Um, but I, I believe Wise Children have taken this model with um, a few things they've done, where there is a, a central piece of, of digital content or a digital experience, and they are collaborating with a, a network of venues to reach far more people than they would otherwise be able to on their own. I wonder, you know, is that a model worth people looking at um you know what what are the questions that people should maybe be asking themselves if they are that type of organization yeah hugely because of course um uh, although this is in some ways in some ways an old-fashioned concept now there will be uh, an enormous proportion of uh, the audience to to just about any cultural venue who sees that venue as a trusted gatekeeper um uh, an authority on um, uh, what is or is not a, a quality product and with whom they have a relationship that they have built over time. Um, and there is, a, I think, a, a very substantial opportunity around uh, buying and promoting that content and venues uh, and CRM database owners recognizing the value of the, the, the contacts that they built up over time, but also the relationships that they have. And so working in a, a smart and sophisticated way to deliver uh, quality product um, to their audiences uh, for, for the best price for the audiences, but also the best value for the whole kind of cultural ecosystem. So ultimately, we want to what we want to achieve here is sustainable venues, sustainable producers and sustainable audiences. Um, and I do think that uh, federation, uh, co-production, co-commissioning is going to be uh, a vital part of, of that in the in the future. I think you're absolutely right that stand-up comedy has kind of pioneered this model over the, the last couple of months. 
Um, but there is no particular reason why um, a similar model couldn't work, for example, for the promotion of new writing. You know, I'm a trustee of a, a new writing specialist theatre, live theatre in, in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, um, and I see an enormous opportunity here for the work that we commission and create on stage at uh, live theatre, which just happens to be uh, an auditorium that would be you know, perfect for digital capture um, to kind of, to to promote those stories, those artists, and that new work um, to uh, a national market. I'm kind of looking for and feeling the gap in the market at the moment for those networks and and, and for those federations. And I do think there's a really substantial opportunity around that. Yeah, and it feels like that opportunity is transcends sort of national borders there, there's an in, in, internationalization opportunity there you know if you don't have to suddenly think about how you're going to tour a, a show to to asia or to australia and new zealand or to north america you know and actually it's it's about finding partners that can help deliver that that content to their audiences that feels like such a, a exciting opportunity i yeah i completely agree you know we spent a lot of time over the last few months talking about um, uh, a framework called the Kenevan framework, which talks about um, four domains within which stuff happens. So there's a chaotic domain, there's a complex domain, a complicated domain, and an obvious domain. And how you respond to events that occur in each of the um, uh, domains varies. So um, if you're in a chaotic space, as we all were in kind of March, April time, then there's really only novel practice. You can just kind of, you just have to act and see what happens. You move into the complex space where the chaos is over, but things are still very complicated. And that's where you see emerging practice. And to some extent, I think that's where, where we are now, where people are using the data that they have available to them um, to develop new practice. You move into complicated, which is the world of good practice, which I think is where a lot of people are at the moment. Um, and then you move into the obvious space, which is the realm of best practice. And that's it's the one question that I can't answer for clients at the moment is people come to me and say, you know, what's the best practice in X? And, and, and I often say, I really can't tell you what the best practice is because we haven't been in this space long enough. What I can show you are six examples of good practice and I can point you towards the one that I think might be right for you. Um, so, yeah, the the uh, how we uh, adapt to this time um, is is seeing a number of kind of emerging practices and good practices, some of which will last and sustain um, uh, and some of which, of course, will will fall by the wayside as uh, we will probably find out. And, and I've said this a, a few times in, a, in various forums that as you look back over the broad sweep of history, but it is often the case that when there is a hugely disruptive event, the new normal tends to have a, a, a remarkable similarity in appearance to the old normal. But what we do want to do is hold on to the best of uh, these extraordinary few months we've been through. And there is a clear opportunity for digital artists, digital content producers and digital distribution um, that, that we should not lose sight of, not least because aside from the commercial opportunity, this is, I think, an important part of accessibility um, to our industry going forward. Uh, there are a number of people now through, you know, whether it's extensive comorbidity or radically transformed economic circumstances um, or geographic isolation or whatever it may be, who are not as able to attend physically as they were before. And digital is a huge part of the solution to that. And a final question about the research that you've you've been doing. You know, 
I know a lot of the work that you do is around price, um, pricing uh, strategies, pricing analysis. Um, and I know those have been some of the questions that you've been asking through your surveys. It feels like <laughs> broadly at the moment on the sort of pay-per-view model that a rough ballpark has been set of sort of between, I don't know, 10 and 25 pounds. And most things exist within that um that that context um but what you have seen you know um the old vic uh chichester festival theater where they have offered multiple price points um and certainly the anecdotally the, the findings that i've heard is that you will get some people who are perfectly happy to pay the top price for what is essentially you know the same view, the same seat, the same experience, because at the moment we don't have the ability to easily provide differentiated digital experiences. I wonder if, if maybe just on this final bit around the research and the thinking that you've done, if you have any thoughts to share on on price. Yeah, so I mean, Baker Richards works across primary research, strategy, segmentation, and, and pricing, and, and and all of those things are kind of uh, they are they are one. But just looking specifically at price, uh, and again, actually, I would think back to you know um, uh, Anka Bal um, when he spoke to you recently. He was he was fantastically honest uh, and, and and refreshing about how, for example, they they reached their price of five pounds per seat for for dancing at, at dusk. Um, and and they encounter that it's not uh, an affordable price point in every country. But even in the UK, there would have been people who couldn't afford that price of five pounds, and people who would have been willing to pay more. It is inherently beneficial um, in digital as in the real world to offer a range of price points. Now, in the real world, we often talk about so-called value fences. So if you pay more, you get more, whether that's a, a better experience um, uh, or uh, wrap around some, some cross-sell thrown in. Um, that does work in digital. So we have seen people differentiate by value fences. So um, you can buy a, a ticket for an experience, but if you want to receive a, a program or an experience pack through the post, then that's a separate price. Um, we've also seen people like, for example, the Royal Court, who've offered who've offered uh, differential pricing um, based on economic circumstances. So there is a full price and there is a discounted price if you um, are currently economically disadvantaged. And um, you know they have seen that that almost kind of honesty box model has worked very well for them. Uh, so I think one of the, the challenges that we're seeing with certainly the video on demand platforms, um, which are out there at the moment, uh, they do often don't support that kind of variable pricing, differential pricing um, that we know is is, is inherently beneficial. Um, so it's it's one of the things that we ask organisations to throw into the mix, as well as you know deciding. Are you going to go for a video on demand platform which is not integrated to your CRM because you want convenience of payment? Uh, or are you going to choose one that is integrated to your CRM? Uh, and are you going to choose one which is capable of differential pricing because you will probably be able to deliver better yields from one that is than you are from one with a fixed price? So um, we definitely encourage people to do variable pricing where they can. And you've ab you ab you've highlighted that Actually, in this strange space at the moment, um, if you uh, artificially limit capacity, then you can variably price without the value fences. So you, as people like the old Vic have done, um, you can get 
uh, audiences to pay more for an experience which they know has been sold um, to other people for 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 less. Um, but that's a, a fantastically a, a been a fantastically effective marketing strategy, um, and and I wouldn't discourage it. Um, I think there are a few other things that that are tangential to pricing which are important to kind of bear in mind um and a lot of them are around sort of behavioral and consumer psychology so um one is this principle of joint evaluation so just remembering that if people are offered one price for something say they're offered one membership um uh, and the choice is buy it or don't then some people will buy it and some people won't but if they're offered a choice between two at two varying price points then more people will buy overall um so that again that kind of joint evaluation principle speaks to the importance of price differentiation second is social proof so particularly where audiences are hesitant at the moment um you know is is taking part in a digital experience something that's unusual seeing that other people are buying or watching or taking part um is a really important part of building confidence um loss aversion is a really interesting part of pricing so um people are instinctively uh motivated by avoiding a loss so if you issue people with um a coupon a voucher um that feels like it has a cash value um which expires then people are more motivated to spend that than they would be if it were just if it presented for example as a discounted price um anchoring as well i'm rattling through things here but it's just really worth people being aware of you know the order of information is really important when we're thinking about price so we attach as human beings more weight to the first thing that we see um which is why we often recommend that people lead with the highest price on a on a page um uh you know if i say to you for example a classic example that if i describe someone to you as intelligent industrious impulsive and critical uh and then describe someone to you as critical impulsive industrious and intelligent we instinctively apply more weight to the things we heard first in that list um and we'll draw very different perceptions so really thinking about the the presentation of price as well as the actual prices um is tremendously important and then just the the last thing i would reflect on is um you know there are there are two systems of thought for how we approach a digital experience a purchasing experience um there's thinking fast and thinking slow and when we're thinking fast we're in system 1 we're using shortcuts rule of thumb decisions intuitive thinking what do i tap on when do i stop scrolling which option looks right uh, i don't know how much this is worth but i know how much a sky movies rental is worth and this feels broadly comparable all those things is kind of system 1 fast thinking and system 2 the slow thinking is where we start to kind of follow rules we make effortful comparison of the things in front of us we really get into the detail of what am i getting for this versus that um the various experiences on offer and we make more considered choices it's also where we doubt where we bring in disbelief and so the more that we can br- we can build digital experiences 
which have user experiences that encourage that fast thinking. You know, I'm being presented with a series of simple, speedy choices that reinforce what I'm doing and make me feel good about purchasing. Um, the the better it is for for all of us, um, uh, and the more likely it is that we'll be able to build those digital audiences, build those conversions uh, at whatever price. And so the actual number that you set is really only one part of the pricing equation. And you, you touched on um, a lot there, you know, and a number <laughs> of really um, interesting concepts, I think, and ideas and areas of study, you know, behavioral psychology, heuristics, biases. Um, obviously, you compressed a lot of information into a short amount of time there. I wonder, I mean, I would expect you were referring to Daniel Kahneman's uh, Thinking, Thinking Fast, Fast and, Slow. and Slow book, which is a great book. I'd advise everyone to have a read. I would also recommend uh, The Choice Factory by Richard Shotton is really good about different types of biases that everyone has and more specifically how they can be uh, leveraged in, in marketing activity. I wonder if there are any other books or podcasts or films that you would recommend people checking out Hugely, on this um, area yeah i so aside from the two that you've mentioned i think i would also just throw into the mix dan Ariely's predictably irrational um it's a it's a slightly older um book um but uh, a really excellent read that covers the ground very well and also, I unfortunately forget the name of the author, but there's a fantastic book called Why We Buy, um, which has been updated recently. Um, it, it's very much based on uh, retail shopping, but has been extended to cover the, the online world. Um, those are, are two great books for uh, understanding consumer behavior. And actually, I think, I don't know whether you'd agree with this, but I, I do think that it is important that um, organizations have a working knowledge of good digital user experience so that they're either designing good experiences themselves or they're asking the right questions of agencies such as yourselves. Um, and although it is now a 20-year-old book, um, uh, I often refer back to Steve Krug's Don't Make Me Think, um, which was updated, I think, about six years ago. So there, there is a more recent version that covers apps. Um, but I would also encourage people who are making, who are doing lots of digital transactions to have a read of that book it's a it's a very accessible um uh, very powerful read yeah and i think you know everything we've covered here from designing um digital content designing digital experiences pricing psychology um motivations to attendance all of these are underpinned by behavioral psychological concepts and realities and i think that everyone is going to be better equipped and will be able to ask better questions and be more effective across this whole swathe of activity if they if they have a good grounding and sort of you know bias why people make the decisions that they do how decision making works all of those things i think is is a valuable set of uh, knowledge to equip yourself with i totally agree and 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 also just to underpin that as well segmentation i think you know segmentation is is going to be of increasing importance um as we uh, go into 2021, 2022, and try to get back onto that kind of path to some form of economic normality. And uh, it's worth noting that, you know, a lot of organizations work with demographic segmentations, um, and, and they are incredibly valuable. And I'm not at all saying that they're not valuable. But I do know there's a, a question mark at the moment over how is the behavior of certain segments changing. Um, but that does not mean that those 
segmentations are, are without value. Um, this psychographic segmentation, which is kind of survey-based, which tells you a lot about what audiences are, are believing and feeling now, um, but quite difficult to apply to a whole database because it only really tells you um, about the people who've responded. But behavioural segmentation, which... Uh, the the usefulness of which was um, uh, very much downgraded when COVID struck because audiences effectively all started behaving in the same way or almost all started behaving in the same way, i.e. they stopped engaging with us. Actually, as we get back into um, uh, reopening and building digital experiences, behavioural segmentation is really the only form of segmentation that is 100% reliable, that tells you what people are or are not doing um, and having a good solid understanding of behavioral segmentation is I think important to uh, uh, planning a, a really effective recovery as well and so you may be able to hear my dogs in the background that are, that are just no, and my, my, my doorbells just rang as well cho- cho- <laughs> chosen this moment to to just to, to start up and maybe just a, a final question on the subject of, of segmentation. You know, most cultural organisations that I, that we both work with have some form of segmentation model that informs their activity across everything they do. You know, given that, as we've said earlier, operating in a digital space in the way that organisations have started doing in 2020 is so new for many people, how how likely is it that those pre-existing segmentation models can be overlaid on digital activity um, or will people need to do some additional thinking in order to make those structures useful in a digital context so so i think all of the segmentation systems that are widely adopted in the sector have to some extent attempted to address both the impact of covid um, on their segmentation models and um, specific questions around digital um, themselves. So it's absolutely worth referring back to whether it is you know, audience spectrum or mosaic or acorn or whatever it may be, it is worth referring back to uh, what the providers of those segmentations say themselves. I do think that it is, in, in the vast majority of cases, inherently useful for organisations to uh, design and build behavioural segmentation within their own CRM, which pulls in factors such as ticket buying, uh, donations, digital behaviours, email opens, email clicks, um, and more sophisticated digital metrics where they can. But most CRMs would be able to at least show you um, ticket purchasing, donations, and email opens and clicks and to uh, build a behavioural segmentation model around that because it's really important that organisations are thinking strategically about these buckets of audiences planning out the user journeys. When somebody falls into segment A, what do you want them to do next? You know, yes, they they have taken part in a digital experience, that's one thing. They've taken part in a digital experience and returned a feedback form. That's the second point of engagement. They took part in a digital experience, filled out a feedback form and donated. Okay, we've got some really interesting information here. What do we want them to do next? And answering that question in a really strategic way is, I think, going to be incredibly important to building back up that loyalty and frequency and volume of attendances, whether it is online or in uh, a physical space in 2021 and 2022. Yeah, and I think that's a a really nice point to end on, Um, you know, looking to the future. We now do have a lot of new information, new research, new data about how digital could help 
cultural organizations reach and engage with their audiences. Um, and I'm really excited to see how the sector uses that as we move through the, the current crisis and beyond. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Robin. It's been, as ever, a complete pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me.